Yes. What's your name? Oh, Gabi. If you use Amazon Smile, you can set New York Insight as your charity, and then they give New York Insight some amount of money if you buy something on Amazon. Oh, that sounds good. For those of you who are shoppers? Yeah, I don't know how much people get, but I like to buy a lot of Kindle books, so I'm kind of happy that you guys should be getting something from that. Okay, we'll watch out for it. Okay. Thank you, Gabby. So uh, to um, to start tonight, we, we, we do these Tuesday nights. Um, just we create a Dharma talk together with your by from your questions. But I'm going to read you a, a poem just to kind of seed your thoughts. It's by Billy Collins, who was at one point the poet laureate of America and one of my favorite poets, and it's called Unturning Ten. He's actually a neighbor where I live. The whole idea of it makes me feel like I'm coming down with something, something worse than any stomach ache or the headaches I get from reading in bad light, a kind of measles of the spirit, a mumps of the psyche, a disfiguring chickenpox of the soul. You tell me it is too early to be looking back, but that is because you have forgotten the perfect simplicity of being one and the beautiful complexity introduced by two. But I can lie on my bed and remember every digit. At four, I was an Arabian wizard. I could make myself invisible by drinking a glass of milk a certain way. At seven, I was a soldier. At nine, a prince. But now I am mostly at the window watching the light, late afternoon light. Back then, it never fell so solemnly against the side of my treehouse, and my bicycle never leaned against the garage as it does today. All the dark blue speed drained out of it. This is the beginning of sadness, I say to myself, as I walk through the universe in my sneakers. It is time to say goodbye to my imaginary friends, Time to turn the first big number. It seems only yesterday I used to believe there was nothing under my skin but light. If you cut me, I would shine. But now, when I fall upon the sidewalks of life, I skin my knees, I bleed. Ah, the end of delusion. <laughs> So if you have questions or comments or questions either about the practice itself or about dharma in life or just dharma in general, please. But Gabby is here. Yes, you do. Uh, hello. Um. I guess lately I've been thinking about progress in practice um, and um, if and when and how to evaluate it. Um, I know the Dalai Lama says something about how you shouldn't really uh, assess your progress except in like increments of 10 years or something like that. 
uh, I'm at seven. Um, <laughs> You're not turning ten yet. I guess, I guess not. I'm still a child in meditation. Um, it just feels like a while, but I don't know. Um, sometimes it seems like very core karmic things um, don't always seem to move. Um, and that can be depressing. Um, so sometimes I have the impression of like all kinds of good things in the circle, but there's like a wounded core that seems to kind of stay that way. Um, so I guess I was wondering, I know it's sort of a heavy question, but I wonder about it and I thought, well, why not? Let's just go for it. Um, um, and then I guess related to that, I think I'm kind of attuned to the first noble truth and I don't really notice two, three, and four. The first is suffering. Um, and I think the fourth might only happen if you're enlightened. So I guess I'm just asking about maybe living with the slowness of progress and being okay with yourself in practice anyway and uh, just general comments on that kind of thing. I'm sorry if that's way too broad or I don't know. Hmm. So what would you like me to say? I thought you were supposed to do that part. <laughs> I'm supposed to do that part? Yeah. Well, you're asking the question because you're pointing at something, but I'm not quite sure what it is you're pointing at. Okay. So you, so you started by saying that you, know, you want to know how to assess your practice, but the Dalai Lama says you should only assess it in increments of 10 years, but you've only been practicing for seven years, right? Yeah. So that's the first thing. And then, and then the second thing you said was that uh, you notice the first noble truth, but not the second, third, and fourth. Yeah, so maybe you can talk about that. Well, so, well, but, you know, let's take it in, let's take it in order, because that's how you, that's how you ask the question, right? Yeah, but I, I didn't have an outline. You didn't have an outline, but I'm outlining it for you. So, so I wonder if the two uh, the two parts of your question really kind they of were meant to, they were meant to be connected. Yeah, they connect. So, can you turn your thing off? I think because we have we both have our things on. So just oh, just turn this off. Sorry, you want me to turn this off? Just yeah, just pause it. So, okay. Because I think it buzzes when we're both on and we're both speaking. Great. Yeah, that's that feels better. Yeah. So, first of all, you know, this, this concept of past, present, and future is really a concept, because there's nothing but the present moment. So, wherever you are right now... Except that's a concept, too, Okay. So, everything is a concept, yeah. if, if you see it that way. But there's an un, there's, so at one level, everything is a concept, 
And on another level, there is not only what is heard, and heard or known in the mind, but what is known in the heart and what is known in the body. So what is known somatically or emotionally is not necessarily conceptual if we really experience it viscerally, right? So when I say that there is that past, present, and future are concepts, that's the only way you can experience them, right? So, but knowing what you know right now is not only known through the mind, right? So if we're going to assess progress, we have to invest some belief in past, present, and future, right? Because we're looking at how was I then, and how am I now, and how am I going to be? And yet, all that we know is what we are now. We may have memory of the past, we may have hopes for the future, but we can't live it viscerally or somatically. Yeah? So, the idea of assessing where we are, first of all, by what? What's, the, what's your scale? Right? How are you going to assess that? Right? Yeah. Yeah, I think what, what I'm hearing you saying is that it's a sort of arbitrary. Can you put your. Oh, yeah. So I think what you're saying is that it's kind of an arbitrary and not useful concept. Well, it may be useful. Okay. Concepts aren't necessarily all useless. And that's how we. That's sometimes how we get to, to know or to understand. So it's not about demonizing thought or concepts, but just understanding what they are. Right? So, so if we're, if we're, but if we're looking at our practice as a conceptual idea that we're going to get from here to there, may or may not happen. But if we can look right now at what is being experienced, what is known, what is understood, what can be, what, how wisdom can be cultivated and developed right in this moment, then this moment can be fully awake. And there is no past practice, and there is no future practice, and there may not even be any present practice. There is just being where we are right now. And to understand that, or to experience that, is to experience a moment of freedom. And then your practice is as full as it can possibly be right now. And yet, there is an understanding that as we practice, there is cultivation and there is development. Right? So it's, it's a little tricky. Right. And so, if, so if, if there's cultivation and development right now in this moment, there's progress. And as the Dalai Lama said, in three years, when you turn 10, you can look back and say, where was I 10 years ago? And how am I different now? 
And for me, you know, throughout all my years of practice, I, I used to wonder, like, maybe if I didn't practice at all, I'd mature anyway, right? It was kind of the lazy person's way out. And yet I, I know that my life has taken a complete, completely different color and a completely different tone than I know it would, have, it would have taken had I not been in a practice. Right? And that's all I really need to know, but can I measure it? I have no idea, because I have no idea what, which part is simple maturity and which part is really deep practice. But what I do know is that a certain amount of freedom has come to me that I think would never have come had I not practiced. And so you can look at that. Where am I not free? Where am I still bound? And where am I free? Is there a part of your life where you used to be really bound that you don't feel bound now, where you feel honestly that you are free or freer than you, than you were when you started practicing? So there, there are ways of looking at it without trying to force your petals open before they need to open or before they can open. Um, and looking at your practice in a gentle and kind rather than um, uh, assessing way. Because I think if you assess it, you're, gonna, you're likely going to end up in self-criticism and self-judgment. But if you, if you appreciate what the practice has brought to you, even if it's small, then that's an encouragement to practice further. Does that make sense? Yeah, that's very interesting. Um, I think maybe I, I've worked with the delusion of if I practice enough, I'm not going to suffer or I'm barely going to suffer. And uh, it doesn't seem to work that way. Um, so especially in certain areas, it can just feel like repetitive suffering. And that can be very discouraging. So how do you work with that suffering? Um, I have, I talk to spiritual teachers that I'm close to. Um, I take walks in nature more often. Um, I do sit and sometimes just feel the suffering and cry. I'm kind of open to crying. Um, or sometimes I get really angry. I tend to feel better after I've gotten angry. Um, I take more walks in nature than I used to. Um, I have a very kind, supportive husband and nice cats. So just those around actually alleviate some suffering. Um, and I don't know, I'm kind of creative. I find lots of different ways and tools and things to practice with. So it might be helpful to know the second, third, and fourth noble truths. Yeah, but it's just the first one a lot. 
And yet I also laugh a lot because I'm weird and make jokes and do that. So I don't know. So, you know, it's as if you got a map from the Buddha, right? And he said, here's where you're starting. Here, you know, he marked an X. And he said, Dukkha. That's, that's where you're starting. And then you said, oh, wow, it'd be really great to get to, you know, where the map takes you. Um, but then you just sit and admire that X, right? And you don't take that, that next step that the map has kind of, you know, been drawn for you as to how to get there. So if you know the second noble truth, what's the second noble truth? Okay, so I'll tell you. It's not no, wait, no, no, I know these. Um, okay, the path to the end of suffering is the fourth. Yeah, so I asked about the second. Right. No, I'm just trying to... So let me, let me just short. Okay, okay. So the second noble truth is that there is a cause of suffering. Right? And that cause of suffering is essentially the clinging mind. The mind that thinks it knows what it wants and doesn't want unpleasant, wants pleasant, and ignores the neutral. And then the third noble truth is the cessation of suffering. And then the fourth noble truth is the path to the cessation of suffering, which is the eightfold path of, you know, that consists of three limbs, wisdom, integrity and uh, contemplation or meditation. So if you have a map in your hand and you want to get somewhere, you need to follow the map. You need to walk that map. You need to really find out, you know, where all of the, um, the problems are on the, on the way and all of the ways in which uh, you might be uh, detoured and you know, so it's, so it's like a life map that you've been given, but to sit and admire the map, or just admire where the X is, is where you're starting, is not going to get you to the end of your journey. So, uh, if, if you really are sincerely wishing for your suffering to end or be alleviated, then it might be interesting to not just know it in your mind, oh, this is the first noble truth, this is the second, this is the third, this is the fourth, but to really um, understand them, as we were saying, not conceptually, but viscerally and somatically. Is there, is it really true? Is it really, really, really true that suffering is caused by the clinging mind. You cannot answer that question without observing. Observing, without observing. So that's where you start. Okay, so you've started well. I know I'm suffering. Right? I know I'm suffering. That's the X. It's true. So, so the second thing is, Okay, let me really investigate the cause. But not on a superficial level. Like, what's it like when, when you're suffering, can you actually turn to that suffering? Can you actually say, okay, first noble truth, I am suffering. Deeply. Deeply. 
What's that suffering like? So that's the first one, which was, what's the suffering like? What's it, what's it like to experience suffering? Most of the time, we don't know because we're so anxious to get rid of it. Some way, somehow, we turn on the television, we grab a bottle of whiskey, we get a joint, we snort some cocaine, we call a friend, we have some sex, we do this, we do that, we do whatever we think is going to make it go away. Right? So the first thing we're invited to do, if we really want to be practitioners, is to feel it. Wow, this is suffering. Wow. And feel it so deeply that you really do formulate the desire, not just to paper over it, but to actually see if there's a way that it can happen. So even just knowing what the Four Noble Truths are, eh, no big deal. Not, not great. Not great for the end of suffering. So once you, once you look, say, oh, oh, it really is because I want things to be this way and they're that way. Right? So what's the solution? What's the solution to that? The solution to that is wisdom. That's the first limb of the path. Can I really understand it? Can I really understand this clinging mind? Can I really see through so that I really understand and believe and know for myself, not because the Buddha or somebody else said it, but because I've actually seen for myself that it's true, that this mind that wants to cling to life being a particular way is unwise. It doesn't see that, as the Buddha said, there are eight worldly winds. There's praise and blame. There's gain and loss. There's fame and disrepute. And how do I, how do I ride those waves? How do I, how do I stay somewhat balanced when I'm on the plus side of the ledger and when I'm on the minus side of the ledger? How do I come to balance? How do I come to balance? Because if I'm, if that's what I'm working on, I don't have time for suffering, right? And and it's not because I've papered over it or tried to make it go away with some temporary fix, but because I actually have a deep understanding of the the actual cause of this feeling of suffering. And am I willing to do the work? And the work is this eightfold path. Am I willing to live a life of integrity? Am I willing to see selflessness? Am I willing to see karma? Am I willing to have an intention of uh, harmlessness and goodwill? That's just the wisdom piece. The integrity piece is right speech, right action, right livelihood. Am I willing to really pay attention to how I speak? Am I willing to pay attention to not stealing, and not stealing in the broadest sense of the word? To not not speaking harshly, not gossiping? And And check it out. If when I do that, does my suffering lessen? 
So this is a this is not this is not a kind of you know let's let's do some you know memorizing of the Four Noble Truths. I've never said that. No, no, no. Sorry. I'm not saying that you said that. I'm just saying okay. that it's not about a conceptual idea. It's an actual practice of what it is. It's actually practicing, and you know, suffering has a lot of different. Um, hats, it has a lot of different faces, it has a lot of different ways that it comes at you, so it's, it takes a while, you know, and is complete freedom really possible? That's your journey. Nobody else can tell you that it's possible. You're the one who has to realize it. So I can't tell you, the Buddha can't tell you, nobody can tell you. You're the one who has to tell yourself. Through investigation, through um, through your, your, your meditation practice, through really paying attention in an investigative way to all that happens in this mind-body. Can I say something? Of course. Okay. On the one hand, I appreciate everything you're saying, and I think it's wise, and I'm thinking about it. Um, but I also, you know, it's hard to represent your practice at a place, you know, in, in this kind of setting. And I don't want to seem defensive, but I do, I, I, I do want to say that I do a lot of very physical, non-conceptual practice. Like, I might be saying things that are in my head right now, but don't assume that that's all I do. Like, I sit with, with, with stuff, like a lot. And I really try to work on the somatic level. And yeah, so I just want that to be so we're clear. I'm not just sort of messing around or doing this all in my head. Like I really have a serious bodily practice. So what I said wasn't meant to um, put you on the defensive or to criticize okay. your practice because I don't know your practice. Okay. So you asked me a question about the four noble truths that I right. was answering. Oh, okay. So you were just speaking more generally about like the four. You were speaking to your question. Okay. Um, I mean, I think what I was trying to ask was that I think I do many of the things that you brought up, and there's plenty of dukkha. Mm -hmm. And I guess I wanted less of it. But maybe that's just my clinging. I don't know. Maybe. So you have that. You have to look at. Yeah. Okay. Thank you. So, uh, hello. I'm here. Hi. So, sort of as a thought, my name is Lynn. Lynn. 
Yep. Um, as sort of a follow-on to what she's speaking, what she's speaking about there, but maybe more broadly, the clinging, the narrative, the clinging to the story that creates the suffering experience. Could you speak a little bit? I imagine you've been practicing for thirty plus years. If I had to had to guess. Um, would you speak a little bit about in a meditation practice or in life that is if that is where most of us are getting get stuck and that's where most of the suffering's coming from from where most of our suffering comes from the story that we're telling the narrative that we're carrying around about the past the present and the future mm-hmm and back and forth all the time, and is this right, is this not right? Separate, apart from stilling the mind, period. Completely stilling, no, like day of silence, but all the time. <clears throat> what would, did you, have you done, can one do, um, do you recommend that's above and beyond constantly, whether you're walking, working, uh, talking to your kid, whatever it is, that is, it goes above and beyond stop storytelling in, in any kind of pra- practical way you might speak about it, if there is anything more to say beyond stop telling stories. Mm-hmm. Well, good luck with that. <laughs> right? So have you been able to do it? Have you been able uh, it, to flat, it, it flashes on and off. Yeah. Uh, it doesn't stay you know, and, exact. And, and, and storytelling is, in, in yes. some ways, you know, the way we stay connected with each other and sometimes the way we stay connected with ourselves. So it's not about, for me anyway, it's not about demonizing any aspect of how my mind works, how my body works, how my heart works but actually uh, understanding how to integrate all of that uh, in a a way that exposes reality. So the storytelling we can actually pay attention to. And there are reasons that we tell ourselves stories. So there can be all kinds of reasons we tell ourselves stories. Maybe it was a way of self-soothing when we were children. Maybe because uh, it's a way that we stay connected with our family or with our, um, our community or with our world. The, 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 the practice, I think, is learning, paying such acute attention so that even when we're telling stories, we're understanding that it's a story that we're telling. Right? So it's not trying to get rid of anything, but it's really deepening understanding of what is happening here. Just as I was saying to Gabby, how can you understand what's happening? So if somebody says, the first noble truth is dukkha, and the second noble truth is the clinging mind, do you really believe it? 
right? So we can believe it because, oh, the Buddha said it. Well, you know, who knows if the Buddha even existed, right? With books tell us it did, teachers tell us he did. But maybe it's all a fantasy. So in our own experience, that's really where it lands, and that's what counts. So in your own experience, is that story really true? Whatever story it is we're telling ourselves. And can we pay attention to it as a story, rather than thinking, oh, it's just a story, it's just, you know. So that the value of every experience is that it's an opportunity for wisdom. So even the storytelling is an opportunity for wisdom. But the this, this suffering, suffering, or at least my, my version of suffering lately, um, happens when the story that I'm telling myself, I like. <laughs> I mean, I don't know if that's what, how other people are. Your suffering happens when you like the story you're telling is that what you said? That the story I'm telling myself, the way I'm telling it to myself, that I'm actually, that the judgment about the story is the thing that's triggering off this incredible suffering. If it was an entertaining story, an amusing story, or a lackadaisical story, no, it wouldn't, it wouldn't cause suffering. But the fact that it's a story that, that my body, my mind, my breath doesn't want to embrace that it's, that it's a story about myself in the world that I don't like, I guess. Maybe I'm answering my own question, which is, if you don't like the story, wisdom says the story is true that you're telling yourself, and you don't like it, and you don't like yourself, that's suffering. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> but it's like, you know, you can, you can listen to, you can acutely listen, and drive yourself mad hearing all the different stories, and that feels like. It, do you really think that's true? That if you acutely listen, that will drive you mad. <laughs> so, so then, are you saying then that presence drives you mad? Listening to the mind all the time and the story drives you mad. Well, so maybe it's not the listening, but how you're listening. So what you said was, I think I heard you say that you listen in a judgmental way. So what would it be like to just listen? Yes, that it should. So that's what you're training. So that's what mindfulness trains is the ability to know when we're listening with judgment. Oh, that's terrible, I shouldn't be thinking that. You know, that kind of judgment. Not discernment, judgment. So mindfulness says, oh, can I just understand what it's like for the mind to have this story? And for the mind to be also judging the mind that's having the story. Can I know what that feels like in my body? Can I know what that feels like in my heart? And can I still hear the story that is being told? 
Because, you know, sometimes, as I said, those stories have, in the past, had um, a function for us. Maybe a survival function. You know, all kinds of things happen to human beings, and, and we, so we have all kinds of adaptations for coping, right? And then after the danger has passed, or whatever it is we've needed to adapt to has passed, somehow the behavior sticks, even though the danger is no longer there. So mindfulness comes in and says, oh, oh yeah, we don't need that anymore, right? We're having an outsized reaction to something in the present because it had some triggering effect in the past. And, but we see that because we're paying attention. Not, not because we're judging whether or not we should have the thought or tell the story. Do you, do you understand the distinction? And I, I think the more we practice, the more that distinction becomes clear. In the beginning, it's kind of all muddled, right? And it takes a while to get used to that non-judgmental awareness. Gets it because we're so used to the other. So and so each time that, which is why practice is always recommended on a regular and consistent and constant basis. Because if it's like physical exercise. If we do it today and then you know wait another three months and then do and you know lift a couple of weights and then wait another two months and lift a couple of weights, nothing happens. But if we do it every day even just for 10 minutes, pretty soon, in a month or so, we start to see some muscle, right? Meditation is exactly the same way. It's like, a, it's like an exercise for the mind. So if you're practicing constantly and consistently, after a while it becomes like second nature to see the story and not get taken in by it or overwhelmed by it. Or, or we, we stop believing the judgments and they start to dissolve because we don't, we're not giving them power anymore. So what did the Buddha say? He said, where we put the mind, that's where it will incline. Right? So however we train the mind to be, in the beginning it's kind of awkward. It's like lifting weights, right? You have to start really small. But eventually, as the muscle builds, you can actually lift you know, heavier weights. So meditation is the same thing. You know, each small moment trains the mind towards really seeing very clearly what the mind is up to. And, it, and in some ways, we don't even have to do anything about it. We just see it. And the seeing brings wisdom. Sometimes, you know, there are patterns that are that need really deep, deeper work. But much of much you know, some of the time it's it's simply the seeing and the knowing that brings the wisdom. Oh I see it now, I see. You know, what did what did the Buddha say on the night of his enlightenment when Mara came to him and started throwing all of the temptations at him and the dancing girls and the arrows and all of that. He said he didn't say, get out of my life, Mara. He said, I see you. 
I see you, Mara. Right? So he's inviting us to see. And so the seeing, in many ways, is the healing. Right? The healing of the mind. So even the stories, don't try to get rid of them. Just see them. Know them. Oh, number 255. <laughs> Back again. There it is again. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and it's okay. And can you let go of the self judgment that arrives with it? You're welcome. Hi, my name is Devon. Devon? Devon? Yeah. Spell it for me. It's D E capital V O N. D as in boy. D as in dog. E V as in Victor. O N. Devon. Um, <clears throat> my question is about um, I've been as I've been practicing a lot of self compassion and learning self love and self kindness. I've been um, sort of learning to acknowledge the um, I guess the way that I think of them uh, is like sort of deep desires of the heart, um, such as, for example, um, truly making a contribution, like using my gifts to be of service, um, or even self-care, whether it's a walk in nature or um, going on retreats, finding sangha, things like that. Um, things that, I don't know if they're needs or they feel positive, nourishing things that I want. Um, which I think acknowledging that is a good thing, but um, and in the past, I think I erred on the side of deprivation, um, that those things might not be worthwhile or worth acknowledging. But then on the other hand, it's very difficult to not go into attachment and feel frustrated. For example, I have a job that's incredibly <laughs> frustrating. Um, or uh, And I would love to have a job that where I felt like I could, you know, really be of service, um, live up to my potential, things like that. Go on a three-month retreat, you know, but I at, at the moment I'm not able to. <laughs> I don't have the money though, you know, for example. So, and it's painful, you know. Those things are painful, but I don't know how to. Um, or to be in nature, sometimes I just want to be in nature and I just want to be, acknowledge myself and be connected by being in nature and instead I'm in New York City. <laughs> um, so I'm trying to find the balance between those, those two things. Or uh, how, how do I acknowledge the, desire, the deep desires of my heart without getting attached and still accepting? You know, I know that peace is wherever you are, you know. Or it's nothing. Like, peace is always available, but... How is peace available? Uh, I think it's by maybe what you were referring to, um, like, through presence in any moment. Yeah, so we act as if we have complete control over every single thing that happens in our lives. Ha! Huh. We have very little control over anything. Right? So, our circumstances, 
we're born into certain circumstances, we're born into certain family patterns, we're born into certain psychological patterns, we're, we're, then we have experiences that either reinforce those patterns or shift them. And, you know, the, as I was saying to Gabby about wisdom, you know, one of the uh, way, one of the, the things that the Buddha said about developing wisdom is understanding karma deeply. Right? And I, I had a, an interview once with a teacher. I was on a very long retreat, and I was, um, uh, I was haunted in that retreat every day, every you know, for days on end. I had this recurring thought about a decision that I had made several years before, and I couldn't let go of this damn thing. It was just bizarre, and it was it was a while, you know, since I since that decision in that retreat. And I went to my teacher and I said, "I'm having this this." Thought is driving me absolutely nuts, right? I, you know, I should have made a different decision, and I didn't, and it's really driving me crazy. And um, I said, I just made the wrong decision. And she looked at me, and she said, "Huh? You still believe they're mistakes?" And she rang the bell and dismissed me. <laughs> it was such a great teaching. I, and every time I think back on something or I look at certain circumstances of my life and think, oh, if I'd done this, that, this, that, 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 I remember that teaching that there are no mistakes. And you know when we're in we're in, when we're in distress, it's really hard to believe that, right? But there is this inexorable law of karma, and this inexorable law of karma essentially tells us that um, things unfold lawfully. So wherever we are, is where it's not because of um, some, you know, random thing happening, because there are no such thing as um, unconditional karma. So everything is as a result of conditions. And those conditions are not just up to us individually. They're up to us also collectively, right? So we are all subject to all of the conditions that have gone before. And here we are now. And there can be peace with that when we understand that. And it may be that you think, you know, I could have made a different decision and maybe this would have happened, but, but you didn't. So here you are now. And so the question is, what will you do now? And if there is a heart's desire to do a retreat or have a different kind of job or a different career, then not to allow that to 
um, haunt you, but to see what you can do in the present moment to build the life that you want. Right? And acknowledging mistakes, in quotes, um, is a way of learning. That was a deep learning that that teacher generously gave me in that interview. Took her three minutes, right? But it was one of the most powerful teachings I've received. And so, how can I, how can I work with things as they are right now, even though they may not be my ideal conditions? How do I work with them right now? And it's not so much that oh, I should be peaceful, <laughs> yeah. but can I actually deeply understand this inexorable law of karma and live in it, live in it, so that whatever has happened that I would rather not have happened, what am I? What am I going to learn from that? How do I? How do I learn something? How do I retrieve something from an unfortunate situation? And if and can I actually be okay, even though where I am is not my ideal? Can I be okay, knowing all of that and accepting all of that? And how do I um, live without that? adding the self-judgment. How, 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 is that, how is it possible to do that, to not add that? Because that's extra. Right? So how, how do I live barely with what's true now? How do I see that, and how do I see it clearly and deeply? And it's a practice, and it's, a, and it's, it's not as if, you know, Everything's going to change, and you know, by magic. But there is transformation that happens when we start to view things in that way, and that transformation is incremental and gradual, but inexorable. And even though it may not feel like that's happening, as Gabby was saying, how do I, how do I assess where I am? You know, and you look back and you say, wow. Hmm, something did shift. Well, I can be really grateful for that and see how my continuing work, which is always going to be surprising, it will open in ways that you never dreamed. It will always be surprising. So how do I do it? How do I just be with what is now in such a way that I'm fully present, fully occupying my life. That's all you're required to do. And it's a big job. It really is. It's a huge job for all of us, for every single one of us. Because there's stuff that happens that we don't like. Well, you know, too bad. But what, what am I learning from that? And how do I keep my heart wide open whatever wants to appear. Thank you.
So thank you for your questions. So that's all, that's all the time we have. So let's just sit for a moment. go and just feel what's felt in your body is the heart open is there warm or cool how is it now for you Notice whatever thoughts are appearing from all of the parts of your body, of your life, your body, your mind, your heart, and allow the heart to get wide open so that it doesn't feel uh, restricted or narrow. and just reflect on your own practice. And how can it be strengthened? And how can you be open to whatever is true now and wherever you are right now? With kindness, gentleness, and love. whatever the qualities of heart or mind that you would rather change, can you accept them with some kindness? And can you let be what is and allow it, just allow an opening for your, of your own heart that will make room for the shift that wants to happen, rather than trying to force anything open or to make anything happen. And then reflect that our contemplate our practice and our contemplations tonight have created a field of goodness. And rather than keeping that goodness for ourselves, we've cast it over the whole world. And we dedicate that goodness and the merits of our practice to the benefit, the welfare, the happiness, the well-being, and the awakening of all beings, including ourselves. All beings everywhere, without exception wishing that all beings be safe from harm, all beings be happy and peaceful, all beings 
be healthy and strong of body, mind, and heart. And live with ease, free from suffering. That is our wish. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.